All right, I invite you to open up your Bibles this morning to Mark chapter 12, Mark chapter 12, and we'll be looking at verses 38 through 44 this morning. I want to say it's, it's a joy and a privilege to be able to uh, preach this morning, and uh, it's my prayer that uh, after we're done that um, your mind will be enlightened through God's Word, and uh, if you're heavy-hearted this morning, uh, that your soul and your heart will be lifted as well. In way of introduction, I briefly mentioned uh, in the announcement period that uh, this past week was super busy here at Grace Christian School because of the two tournaments that were going on. Um, and within those games, there were a lot of significant plays. If you're a, if you're a sports fan, whether it be uh, basketball or football, you know there's, there's moments in games where there's a significant play that takes place that either keeps that team from winning or allows that team to have success. And then the gym was packed. Uh, for a lot of those games, there was, there was nowhere to sit, the people standing around. But what made the whole tournament in the light of eternity insignificant was the fact that uh, Dick Long, who is a member of our church and another friend of his who were part of the Gideons, came to distribute Bibles at the region tournament. And I talked to Dick earlier, and he said, well, I was thinking maybe, um, if we're lucky, 80 to 100 Bibles maybe. Um, and uh, I talked to Dick this morning, and uh, they were able to pass out 353 New Testament Bibles at the tournament. Now, this is significant, Okay. When you think about everything that was going on, significantly speaking, with the region tournament, it pales in comparison to the gospel going out. Now, this is 350 New Testaments, and probably, I think Dick said, 75 to 80% of the New Testaments that they gave out went to the villages. So either right now, this morning, okay, or tomorrow morning when those folks go home, within those villages, the New Testament, the gospel of Jesus Christ is in those villages now. And that's super exciting. That's something that's very significant. As this morning we're going to be talking about, if you looked in your bulletin, the title of the message is Insignificance Worth Mentioning. So I'll let you ponder that. It's kind of oxymoronic. Insignificance Worth Mentioning. In regards to something being significant, there's an event that I'd like to briefly talk about, because actually I was part of this. This was back on uh, November 16th, 1991. If you're a college football fan, uh, you may recognize this event as I talk through it. This was a Saturday afternoon in Tallahassee, Florida, with the number one ranked Florida State Seminoles, where I graduated from. Uh, they were 10-0, and and that day in Dope Campbell Stadium, they were facing off against our arch rivals, the University of Miami, the Hurricanes. They were 8-0. What was on the line at this point in time on this particular football day was a national championship. This was before the college playoffs. So the national championship was determined by the AP and the coaches poll. Battle ensued, um, going back and forth. And now we find ourselves in the fourth quarter with 27 seconds left. Florida State had no more timeouts left. They had just thrown a pass that was incomplete, which stopped the clock. And Coach Bowden, if you're familiar with college football, then when you hear the name Bobby Bowden, you know 
Bobby Bowden was legendary, one of the all-time winningest coaches in NCAA college football history. And actually, I had the opportunity to meet Coach Bowden on several occasions because a friend of mine played football for him at FSU. And I was introduced to him. And Coach Bowden was a very solid, born-again believer. Bobby's or Coach Bowden's philosophy was he wanted to share the gospel with players on his team more than anything else, and he did that. So here we are, 27 seconds left in the game. A national championship is on the line. So instead of throwing a pass into the end zone that could be picked off, he decided that he would kick a field goal. It would be a 35-yard field goal. His kicker, Jerry Thomas, had already kicked three field goals that same day. So the cat's in the bag. So the kicking team goes out. And actually, I want to interject this. My wife, who was not my wife at the time, who I did not know at the time, was actually there at the game in the stadium with her dad. I was watching the game on ABC. Uh, And so it would be about 15 days later after this tragic event for Knowles fans, I would meet my wife, and six months later we'd be married. I just want to interject that because she is in the room. Um, So they line up. The snap, perfect snap, perfect hold. The kick goes up. The crowd goes crazy. Coach Bowden rips his headsets off and he's running out. And then if you've ever watched the video of that, he stops. Because Jerry Thomas's field goal attempt went wide right. Florida State loses the game. They lose the next game. They're out of the national championship. University of Miami is the national champions that year. A significant loss for Coach Bobby Bowden for the Florida State Seminoles, and it was devastating for Florida State Seminole fans. You would think that the governor or the president would have had died because Tallahassee that evening, it was just dead. A lot of people didn't know what I'm going to tell you now, and you may not have known, but the year prior, the NCAA Rules Committee for College Football decided they would change the width of the goalpost in college football to match that of the NFL. So that year, 1991, was the first year that the college goalposts, the uprights, were moved in 10 foot 4 inches. Jerry Thomas's field goal attempt missed by the width of a football. Some people grumbled over that, saying if that had not happened, we're victims, we should have won the national championship. But however, the next day was Sunday, November 17th. And I remember this distinctly as well because Bobby Bowden was the guest speaker at the First Baptist Church of Tallahassee. I was there with my roommate. As Coach Bowden walked up and everybody was surprised that he was there, he'd already committed. Most people thought that Coach Bowden and his coaching staff would be in his office going over game film finding out why they missed that wide right. What could they do to get back in the national championship hunt? But Coach Bowden, as significant as that loss was for him and FSU football program, to him that was insignificant compared to the significance of him sharing the gospel. I remember as he walked up, everybody with bated breath was waiting to see if he was going to be the victim Say, man, if they had not changed that, we'd have won it. Or if he'd have said, woe is me, you know, we worked so hard, we could have had a national championship. 
But I remember that day specifically, Coach Bowden never said anything about the bitter loss. Not one thing. His focus was on the gospel. He shared his testimony, how he became a Christian. Shared the gospel and invited those people in the audience to come to Christ. Because Bobby Bowden's mindset was that the most significant thing was not football, was not a national championship, was not his position as a legendary coach. That was all insignificant. The significant thing was to call people to Christ to realize and make them think, where does your significance lie? My question to you this morning as we begin is, where is your significance? Where do you find your significance in this morning? You know, the definition of insignificance, and when you think about the title of the sermon, insignificance worth mentioning, it's like, that don't make sense, right? Because something that's insignificant is not worth mentioning, right? It's too small. It's of no importance, unimportant. Synonyms for the word insignificant are words like trivial, irrelevant, inconsequential, or unimportant. And maybe there's some of you in the audience this morning that that's how you feel this morning. Maybe you feel insignificant. Maybe you feel trivial. Maybe you feel irrelevant. Maybe you feel unimportant. Then we know the word significant means sufficiently great or important to be worthy of attention, noteworthy. You know, the world that we live in, the culture, is all about trying to define for you and I what is significant, what is insignificant. And actually, all through history, the culture, the world, has been involved with trying to define what's significant, what is insignificant. Those who are winners, those who have power, prestige, wealth, beauty, talent... Those are the significant ones. If you don't possess those, you're insignificant. Back when I was growing up, it was defined with the phrase of keeping up with the Joneses, right? So trying to keep up with what the Joneses have, trying to keep up with what the world has. That's how you would find your significance. The old bumper sticker, some of you may remember, he who dies with the most toys wins. That's how the world and the culture wants you to divine what is significant. Even today, the culture is working overtime to define for you and I what is significant and what is not. And think about these categories that the culture is trying to define. It regards the role of a man and woman, marriage, gender, the life of the unborn. Culture is trying to define whether those things are significant And they say that they're not. Even our children and our grandchildren are being indoctrinated and taught by the culture what they need to deem as significant or insignificant through social media, television, movies, music. If you don't wear this, if you don't look like this, if you're not part of this group, if you don't celebrate and accept this then you are insignificant. It's the idea of being canceled by the culture. But as Christians, we need to be aware and realize that 
This is actually Satan working. And all we have to do is go back to Genesis chapter 3 to see how that works. Think about Adam and Eve. At the time, the most significant people on planet Earth. They had no reason to feel as though they were insignificant. Yet, they bought into the lie of the devil. The devil externally made them start thinking in an unholy way that they needed to be more significant than what they were. Remember what Satan told them. He said, look, God's selling you a raw deal here because when you eat of that, you're not going to really die. He knows that you'll become like him. You'll be like a God. You can make your own decision. You can make you can be responsible for what you want to be responsible for. You can be significant. And we know how that turned out. Perhaps this morning, as I said earlier, maybe you're considering your significance or maybe you're considering your insignificance. Perhaps you've been trying to find your significance in things that are not providing that significance for you. And you feel as though you're just spinning your wheels in the mud and you're trying everything you can to try to grasp hold of something that makes you feel significant. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel insignificant because of maybe something that's happened to you in your life, either in your past or even right now that you're living it. And you feel as though you're the most insignificant person in the room. It's like we read in the Psalms, God, where are you? This morning, through the text, we want to look at two types of individuals that we see represented in the text with this idea, this concept of being significant or insignificant. The first, if you're taking notes, the first type of individual is the one who deems themselves significant. And there's two subcategories of this person. The first is those who place their significance in their position. And the second category of this person who deems themselves significant is the one who places their significant in their possessions. And then lastly, we'll look at an individual who realizes that their significance is found in their posture. And what I mean by posture is their humility before God Almighty, the creator of the universe, the giver of life and death. This is the person that sees themselves truly as they are, insignificant, but yet declared, proclaimed significant because what Christ has done. We're going to pray and we're going to get into our text this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity, Lord Jesus, that we can look into your word and we can glean from things that happened 2,000 years ago that are significant. I pray, and Father God, now as we go through this, that you would remove me, you'd speak through me and to me, Lord. I pray, God, that, that your words would be heard and lives would be changed. We ask these things in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen. So let's read starting in Mark chapter 12, starting with verse 38 down through verse 44. And in his teachings, talking about Jesus, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. 
who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. The background of where we're at right now is we just jump right here into the end of this chapter. This section of Scripture places us in Jerusalem and not too far removed from the event we call the triumphal entry. When Jesus comes into the gates there. Also, leading up to this event is the time when the second time when Jesus, well, the first time that Jesus cleanses the temple. This is leading up to the last Passover that Jesus will spend on earth. There's hordes of people here during this time because devout Jews from all across the Roman Empire have come to participate in this holy feast. Up to this point, we have read and if you, if you read previously, Mark chapter 11, Jesus' authority or his significance or his importance has been challenged by the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. In Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17, we see that on that same day, the Pharisees and the Herodians, the Herodians were a political group who supported the Herods. The Pharisees and the Herodians did not mix well together. Yet in this particular passage, they have come together to unite, to try to defame, to take away the importance of Jesus. Then later in Mark chapter 12, verses 18 through 27, Jesus' significance or his importance is challenged again by the Sadducees in regards to what is heaven going to be like. And these were the guys who didn't even believe in the resurrection. But then we read about the single scribe who's overheard all these debates and he's heard Jesus speak and he's intrigued because his heart is starting to feel something. His mind is starting to rethink something. And he asked Jesus this question. He said, teacher, what is the most important of all? Which commandment is the most important of all? Which commandment is the most significant? Then Jesus answered him with the most well-known Verse that a Jew, a practicing religious Jew, or any Jew at that time would understand was the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. And it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. This resonated with the scribe. He said, Yeah, you're, that's true. And then Jesus said this to him. He said, you are not far from the kingdom of God. This could have a two-point meaning because Jesus himself was the kingdom of God on earth at this point. And then the kingdom of God of him being swept into the kingdom of God, accepting Christ as the Messiah. Perhaps today you're in here and perhaps 
you are not far from the kingdom of God. As we look at this first group of individuals, those individuals who deem themselves significant, the first subcategory that we see is those who place their significance, trust in their position. Verse 38, Jesus gives us a warning about this. It says, and in his teachings, he said, beware of the scribes. The scribes were the teachers. The scribes were the people who were to teach the people the law, translate for them what that meant, and stay true to the word of God. But yet these scribes started adding things, what we would call legalism. You have to do this. You have to putting burdens on the people. You have to keep this commandment. Yeah, it doesn't say in the Bible, but you have to keep it or you're lost without hope. And he says, beware of these scribes who like to walk around in long robes. This idea of a long robe was actually a long robe. It was a symbol of authority in that day. It would go to the cuff, go all the way down to the ankle. And if you saw somebody walking around with a robe like that, then you were expected to acknowledge them. You were expected to approach them as an authority figure, as someone significant. The Greek word that they like to do this is the Greek word desire. They long for that. These people that try to find their significance in their position love to be seen by people. They love to be doted on. We see what Jesus says other about them. He says they like to walk around in long robes and like, there's that word again, desire, Greetings in the marketplaces, going to the grocery store. I'm wearing my robe, and when I go past the milk carton, I want somebody to say, Oh, hey, you're so and so, right? They want that. That's where they find their significance. That's what they're placing their significance in, is their position. We also see they have the best seats in the synagogues at church, they're the ones that want to be seen. They'll walk the aisles a couple times, maybe, so everybody can see them coming in. Oh, so-and-so is here, you know. Then we see, also it says, and places of honor at feast. Everything is about them. That's where they find their self-worth is in what everybody thinks about them and their position. He also says this in his warning. He says, who devour widows' houses. The Greek word for devour there simply means to eat it all up, down to nothing, leaving no hope for recovery. So these guys who deem themselves significant actually look at everybody else as insignificant. You're below me. Widows were to be taken care of. There were specific rules in the Old Testament even of how we're supposed to take care of widows. Even the book of Acts, it talks about that. So people they were supposed to deem better than themselves, they looked at as being lower because you don't have my position. And then he says, for excuse or pretext, make long prayers. And in the Hebrew of this, this could actually mean two things. It could be mean that uh, it's one of these things. Well, hey, will you, will you pray for me because I'm in need? Uh, yeah, but don't come to me. I'll take care of that. In other words, you can come to God through me and I will do that. But it more likely means that these guys were saying these long, lofty, big-worded prayers that 
all that was happening was the oxygen was being taken out of the room. And they loved that. Jesus talked about you guys love to be seen. You love to be doing all this stuff. Remember, Jesus even called these same people out. He said, you're whitewashed sepulchers full of dead men's bones. You looked apart, but you're dead inside. It reminds me, these people, of the parable that Jesus told in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. I mean, spot on. It says here in Luke 18, 9 through 14. He, talking about Jesus, also told this parable to some listeners who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Wow, it sounds just like that, right? Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. There's nothing wrong with having a position of power or being an influencer. But if you're trusting in that as your sole significance, if you're trusting in that as your ticket to heaven, you'll be highly disappointed. You can be everyone's favorite person today in the world and everybody hates you tomorrow. You can go from being the hero today to the zero tomorrow. The second subcategory of this first person who deems himself Significant is they place their significance in their possessions. Not just talking about wealth, money. I'm talking about talents. I coach basketball and I'm constantly saying to our girls, ladies, don't determine your self-worth by what kind of basketball player you are or what kind of basketball player you're not. Because one day you will not be a basketball player. We see that in college and professional athletes. We see that in movie stars. They determine their significance by their possessions, their talent. And when that's gone, when a, an injury takes you out of the game, you see what happens. There's a high rate of suicide, alcoholism, spousal abuse, because these people now cannot function in life because what they found their significance in is gone. See, all these material things, your talent, your looks, uh, your possessions, your wealth, those things fade away. And we as Christians don't quite get that. You could be so important that they name a building for you or after you could have your name up on the building. But guess what? I'm going to tell you this. One day that building won't be there. And actually one day somebody will come along that's more important than you and they'll take your name down and put their name up on the building. So finding your significance or trusting in your significance, even your salvation because of what you do or who you are, or what you possess, is a dead-end road. It's a road that will lead you straight to hell. Then in verse 41, we see these people. And verse 41 says, And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. 
Many rich people put in large sums. Here's Jesus. He's had a long day. Now he sits down and he's looking at these 13 boxes that had these probably brass trumpet-shaped funnels sitting on them. And remember, this is the time of the Passover. There's hordes of people there. A lot of wealthy people with nice outfits, with sacks of money. Now, back then, they didn't have credit cards. They didn't have dollar bills. They had coins. And there would be priests there. And all those boxes would be where you want your offering to go. And there would be priests there just to make sure you're not throwing in rocks, you're not throwing in plug nickels, because when you put your money in, made a loud noise. As it's going down. You guys ever been to one of those grocery stores where you uh, take your coins and bring all your coins with all your trash in and you pour it in that thing? And you're embarrassed because everybody's looking at you. Picture that with 13 of those things going around. Tons of people talking and wanting to be important and feel important. Jesus is watching these people. He's just sitting and he's watching. These people are seeking to gain congratulatory accolades from the people next to them and then from God and probably in that order. They're probably more importantly wanting to see what their neighbors would think about them rather than God. Now, there's nothing wrong with material possessions. Ecclesiastes talk about, talks about that. Solomon says, hey, it's good that you rejoice and you enjoy the fruit of your labor. But if, if you're determining your self-worth or your significance with how much money you have, how many houses that you have, those things will one day come to naught. One day you'll be too old to be in that house. One day you may be somewhere else, not in that house. First Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19, Paul told Timothy to talk to the people in his church who were wealthy. He said, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share the storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. Why? So that they may take hold of that which is truly life or what is truly significant. Recapping in verses 38 through 41, we've seen the individual who deems themselves themselves significant through either their position or through their possessions. The question for you this morning regarding that, are are you that type of person? Do you see yourself in the text that you're a type of person that is relying on your self-worth or your significance because of perhaps your position or because how much money you have in the bank? Now, the last person that we'll see from this text is, I believe, the person that we all should want to be. This is the person that we see who deems their significance through their posture, through their humility, who sees himself as insignificant, but declared significant or righteous, if you will, through God. Look in verse 42. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. Jesus is sitting there with all the big spenders. And the person he recognizes is the most insignificant person 
in the room. To paint the picture, even in the context of this scripture, she was insignificant. She was a ghost in that crowd. An important woman, a discarded woman, this poor widow woman seems to be too simple and too small of an individual to be of any significance. I can see her now, perhaps an older lady, tattered clothes, stands out in contrast to everybody else's wearing. Perhaps she's hunched over, perhaps she's shaking, and she's trying to get in line to one of the offering boxes, but she is so insignificant that people are just bumping her out of line, and she's patiently waiting, and she's being bumped out of line Push back and no one even knows or cares that she's there. And what significant is she to these people? She's poor. She's a widow. Mark goes on to describe her insignificance even more when he says this of what she brought. She came and put in two small copper coins which make a penny. The word small in the Greek is the word lepta, which is in reference to a peeling or a shaving. Nothing. Two of those didn't amount to anything. Why in the world is she there bringing two coins that would not even make a sound as it hit? Perhaps she comes up and one of the priests is looking at it and going like, what are you even doing here? Maybe Maybe she feels humiliated. Maybe she feels defeated. Maybe she feels very insignificant. Such an insignificant woman with such an insignificant offering that no one paid attention to. No one even saw her, but Jesus saw her. We read in Proverbs 15, 3, that God sees everything. The Bible says, the eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. God sees everything that you do, everything that I do. And more than that, he knows the intent of your heart. He knows what you're doing. He knows what your heart is desiring. He knows what your heart is soaring after. We're all familiar with this verse. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. This lady comes in there. She's probably the, we don't know. We don't know what her name was. The Bible doesn't, she's so insignificant, the Bible doesn't say her name. We don't even know if she even knew that Jesus was watching her. But we know that he was. Jesus' disciples were so caught up in everything else, in the insignificantness of all the giving, that he had to get their attention. Verse 43 says, and he called his disciples. I can see him now. Hey, boys, 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 look look over here. Look at her. And I'm... She's so insignificant, they're probably going, who, who, who? Maybe he grabs one of their faces, her. And he says, truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all she had. Now, how did Jesus know this? He's just sitting there watching. Because we know that Jesus knows everything. In John 2, 23 through 25, in another Passover feast before this, it says, Now when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs. 
that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This morning, as you sit here, Jesus knows your heart. He knows what's going through your mind right now. He knows exactly where you're at, even in life, because Jesus sees everything. Jesus knows everything. This insignificant poor woman, her posture, her total dependence on God is where she found her significance. Let me add this. She didn't have a victim mentality because of her position in life. She didn't have the woe is me mentality because everyone treated her as being insignificant. You know, if you stop and think about it, who should have the victim mentality of anybody would be Jesus Christ because he was victimized for us. He didn't deserve what he got. But yet the Bible says that it pleased God to crush his son for us. Our insignificant, uncaring lives, Jesus died for. Because she understood how insignificant she really was, she was able to understand how all-sufficient Christ was. Jesus points out the most insignificant person in the place. The Bible says she gave everything that she had to live in, total putting her whole life in God's hands. Everything, down to the last two lepta. In conclusion, maybe you're here today and you are relying for your significance or your salvation on your position. Maybe you're a really good person. Maybe you really try hard to be good and nice to everybody. Maybe you're an important person and you take that role on the best you can. You want to make sure you're doing the right thing. You do good works. You come to church. You even give to church. But if you're holding on to those things for your significance, for your salvation, hell will be your home. Perhaps you're the person who's relying on your possessions, not just your wealth, but your talents. Man, I can, I can talk with the best of them. I can do this, and I can sing, and I can do all this. But if you're trusting and placing your significance, your salvation, in your talent, in your possessions... Hell will be your home as well. None of these things will ever give you significance in life because they're temporal. They go away. The temporal things that we have, our positions, our possessions, they get stolen, they rot, they get lost. But to be counted significant enough to be a child of God, here it is, you must be without sin You must be holy as God is holy because heaven is a place where sin can never enter. Unholiness can never enter. Revelation chapter 21 verse 27 says, but nothing, talking about heaven, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Paul wrote in Romans chapter 3 verses 10 through 12, he said, As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. 
No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So if that's the standard to get to heaven, how in the world can I or you make it? We can't make it. We can't deem ourselves significant. We can't do enough good works. We can't have enough possessions to go to heaven. It's impossible. So how does that work? Well, we have to be declared significant by Jesus Christ. And it's very simple. Jesus, in his own words, said this. And everybody in this room probably knows this verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's your name being written in the Lamb Book of Life. That's your insignificance becoming significant through what Christ did for you and I on the cross. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 emphasizes that it's not your position, it's not your possessions. Paul wrote this, he says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God and not a result of works, so that no one may boast. If you're here this morning and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, this is not Pete Johnson telling you, this is God's word saying you're on your way to hell. And you're trying to create some sort of significance in your life, and it'll never happen. Even in this room, you're so significant that Jesus left the throne. He left the halls of heaven to come live on earth as a man and suffer and die so you wouldn't have to. And all you have to do is understand that as the Holy Spirit is calling and drawing you today, maybe this morning, I need to have real significance in my life. It only comes through what Christ has done on the cross for you. But then maybe this morning you are a believer. You say, Pete, I I know that I'm born again. But man, I'm struggling. I'm, I'm doubting the world and Satan has beat me up so much. I'm wondering, am I even significant? I'm starting to think that I'm insignificant. I'm think, starting to think that maybe God doesn't really care about me. Maybe I'm not truly his child. I want to say this to you. If you are born again, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, it's a done deal. Ephesians tells us that you're a seal to the day of redemption. No man can pluck you out of God's hand. Not even yourself. That is significance. In Psalm 142, David wrote this. He says, with my voice, I cry out to the Lord. With my voice, I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see there is no one who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. Believer, you like that? Do you feel as though no man cares for your soul? Well, man may not, but if you're born again, God does. You are significant to him. Verse 5 of Psalm 142 says, I cry to you, O Lord. I say, because I'm convinced, because I know it, you are my refuge 
my portion in the land of the living. You, God, are my significance. Romans 8, 31 through 39, Paul wrote this in regards to the Christian. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, how he will not also with him graciously give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This morning, if you're here and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, I urge you, I implore you, run to the promise of salvation. Run to real significance. For the believer this morning, if you're doubting, man, am I, you're struggling, here's, here's what I urge you to do. I urge you to remember the promise that you're significant, the promise of your salvation. I'd like to close with a quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon. It says, The greatest of human actions will appear to be insignificant when we come to die, and especially those upon which men most pride themselves. These will yield them the bitterest humiliation. We shall then say what madmen we must have been to have wasted so much time and energy upon such paltry things when we shall discover that they were not real, that they were but mere bubbles, mere pretenses. We shall then look upon ourselves as, as demented, condemned men to have spent the whole of our life and of our energy Upon them.